What is this? It is a Bible. It is the Word of God. Now that's very important when we think about preaching because getting up here is not like a TED Talk where we just give 18 minutes worth of life advice to see how you can make your life or your business or your side hustle better. But this is God's Word. And when God's word is proclaimed to you, you can have confidence that God is speaking to you. And that's hugely important because in times like this, no matter what's been happening to us this week, don't we want to know if God still speaks today? Don't we want to know if there really is a word from the Lord? And it is true, as I told RUF on Wednesday that when we plan out sermon series, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but God does know, and He knows exactly what we need to hear. This is God's Word for you, coming from Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Then they said to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will, be, will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out, to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is living waters to us who dwell in the wilderness. And as you rain down manna from heaven to provide for your people, we ask that from heaven you would rain down upon us the knowledge of the gospel. For it is only in you revealing yourself that we come to know you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the hope that we can find here in this text. So Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would do your work Bring dead souls to life. Bring blind eyes to see. Bring deaf ears to hear. And bring mute mouths to praise you from here on out. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. According to the Bureau of Standards in Washington, a dense fog that covers seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet... So in other words, a very big fog 
that is actually only composed of less than one glass of water. That amount of water is apparently divided into about 60 billion tiny droplets. Yet, as those minute particles settle over a city or a countryside, they can almost blot out everything from your sight. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it so amazing how things that are so small can actually appear to be so big? Isn't that actually often the case in life circumstances? Not always, but often in life when we're in a certain moment, it feels like this massive fog, but then later in life, we realize it was only a cup of water. But isn't this actually what we think about our sin? We often look at our sin as thinking it's not that big of a deal. God's just blowing it out of proportion. We often think it was only one word, one look, one drink, one moment, one message, one time of rebellion, one hookup, or as we think about tax season rolling, rolling around, it was just one tax form. After all, in Genesis 3, it was only one bite of a fruit, right? As John T. Rhodes says in his book on covenant theology, which is actually out there on the book table, I'd encourage you to look at it. He says this, in that moment of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they allied themselves with Satan to declare war on God. The action itself might have seemed small, but the intent was evil to the core, treason. And that is what sin is. Sin, whether small or big, whether fog or a cup of water, it is all treason against the Most High God. You see, that's why running away from God, it's, it's treason. And we see that here with Jonah. That's why God sends the storm. God, God's not making a bigger deal out of this. He's actually trying to show Jonah how big of a deal it is. Matter of fact, that's one of the best mercies God can show you, is actually how big of a deal your sin is, so that you can run to a Savior who is an even bigger deal. Go back to verse 11. We see in this text a massive storm, we see a mysterious ceasing, and we see a miraculous salvation. First, we see this massive storm in verse 11. They said to Jonah, after the lot had fallen upon him, they said, what shall we do to you? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? There was this massive storm upon the sea, and we do need to think about what, what is this storm, not merely just physically, obviously it's a hurricane-type storm, something that would have been so big that it would clearly have looked like it was from one of the gods. But this particular storm, we see that it is either God's discipline or it is God's wrath. Now for God's people, whenever he sends a storm in our lives, if you are united to Jesus Christ, it is not God's wrath. It can't be because his wrath was poured out on Jesus. But nevertheless, he does send storms as part of his fatherly discipline. But that's only for God's people. But his wrath, sometimes God does send a storm. 
and he sends it to the unbelievers, that is never for God's people, it's only for his enemies. See, actually, the reason I say that is that there is a sense here that for one, Jonah is in God's family, he is in covenant with God, but there's also a bigger picture happening. Because Jonah is actually representing all of the northern tribes of Israel. He's representing sinners and what happens. And whenever we are not in relationship with God, whenever we are running away from God, then his wrath is against us. But why this storm? Why the storm? Well, we really see there are different types of storms in life. And they differ, though they might happen at one time, but they differ in their purposes for the believer and unbeliever. First off, there can be the storm of suffering. For the believer, when God brings this storm of suffering of any kind in your life, that, that's not God getting back at you. But actually, in every storm, at bare minimum, it, it's teaching us to cling to Christ. It's teaching us that when we are weak, He is strong. But for the unbeliever, when God brings suffering, it is always a call for you to wake up. Wake up. We see in Romans 1 that God's wrath is revealed, and it's actually a picture of His, his end-time wrath, that as it were, it's like an appetizer in this life, to help you wake up from what would happen. It's meant for you to repent, to cast yourself upon Jesus, who will take the wrath of God for you. But there's also a type of storm in life that's in the conscience. The believer still faces this oftentimes, and this is in the realm of spiritual warfare, or one of my favorite terms from Martin Luther, this German term called Anfechtungen. Isn't that amazing? just sounds aggressive, sounds like a storm, and it is. It's the sense that even though I'm a believer, maybe God's turned his back on me. Maybe there's something still that he hasn't forgiven, that he really needs to pour out his wrath on me. And it makes me feel as if I am not a child of God. That's what believers often go through. It is actually interesting, Luther himself said that what makes a true Christian, meditation on scripture, prayer, and spiritual warfare. Isn't that interesting? Often we do have that storm in the conscience where our sins are ever before us. But it's to teach us to cling to Jesus knowing that He is righteous for us even though we never could be. Amen? But then there are storms in the conscience for the unbeliever. See, this is the time when the conscience is actually plagued. And your sin is revealed to you. And it is the, the sign, the call for you to once again to wake up, to repent, to cast yourself upon Jesus once again, the only one who can be righteous for you. But there's also the storm of whenever we realize our actual sin. And this does happen in the life of a believer. Sometimes we, we are unrepentant at a certain moment and God brings a storm into our life and it's supposed to bring us back, like Jonah. It's meant to call us to confess our sins and to run to Jesus, who will bring us back, who will cleanse us and forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. But then for the unbeliever, once again, whenever your sin is revealed to you, it is meant to wake up, to repent, to cling to Jesus. 
Those are some of the ways storms happen in our lives. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because as we dive into this text, unbeliever and believer, you need to look and see at yourself as Jonah here, someone who has been running away from God and you need to respond to his mercy. You see, we need to remember about sin is that As mentioned earlier, sin is a declaration of war against God, and that means two things. One, we treat God as our enemy, and that's true, but that's not only it. Whenever we are in sin, and whenever we are not a believer, we are God's enemies. You see, we need to be reconciled. We need to come back to His mercy. There's a storm upon our lives that comes around and as we think about these storms, we see really the begging question here in verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea, the storm, that it may quiet down for us? What can we do for these storms to stop? You see, thinking particularly if we are not a believer. You see there, the second part of verse 11 says, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It, it, it's almost as if the sea had more and more of a temper. It was gaining in power. And that, that's a very important point. Because as Jonah was not repenting, the storm grew worse. Unbeliever, you need to hear this. The longer you delay, the more God's wrath heaps up. You see, whenever we continue to run away from God, the storm, it grows stronger. And we try various things to to stop this storm. We try our our own strategies. We see what they tried. We'll look back at verse 5. It said, Then the mariners were afraid, and each tried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. You see, we, we see that they had tried various different things they tried one their own idolatry it says they cried out to their own gods second we also see this they were trying to get rid of certain things they were casting things overboard thinking that would help and don't we see this in our own lives we often try to get this storm to cease whenever we're an unbeliever and we try to not think that god will be wrathful towards us And so we try idolatry, we try getting rid of things. And whenever we try idolatry, you might not think, well, it's not like I have a figurine in my house that I bow down to, but we all struggle with idolatry, don't we? Maybe we have the academic God, keeping the certain grades or teaching or whatever it might be, or we have the sexuality God, the business God, the parenting God, the political God, the sports God, or the social media God, or whatever else it is. It's whatever you worship. But then what happens when a storm hits your life and you realize that that idol is not giving you what you want? What happens when you end up in Stillwater and not one of the big cities? What happens when your marriage loses the honeymoon phase? What happens when your children grow to dislike you and all of your advice? Or you don't keep the grades to get into grad school? Or the students don't choose your class? Or 
your elective or whatever it might be, or your political party has a scandal, or even their policies just make things worse. What happens when you don't find rest whenever you change your sexual identity? Or what happens when you don't find rest and lasting satisfaction whenever you just sleep around with whoever you want whenever you want? What happens when you get a career-ending injury in sports? Or what happens all of a sudden when you start to get critics rather than likes? You see, our idols will fail us. And that is what storms reveal. We try to call out to our idols saying, save me, save me. And what we do in response is either we try harder at worshiping that idol or we try another idol, but both ways fail us. But then we also try this other strategy that the sailors do where we just try to get rid of things. We, we just try to stay away from sin or we practice just give us the rules of Christianity so that we can just do that. We try these new habits. We try this new lifestyle. It's all about us doing. Mahatma Gandhi is... Back in, I believe it was 1992, he was fasting to protest the riot killings that followed uh, the division between Muslims and Hindus uh, back in 1947. And a fellow Hindu had approached him to confess a great wrong. Listen to this. He said, I killed a child. I smashed his head against a wall. Well, Gandhi responds back saying, why? man responds with, well, they killed my boy. The Muslims killed my son. Gandhi says, I know a way out of hell for you. Find a child, a little boy whose mother and father have been killed, and raise him as your own. Only be sure that he is a Muslim and that you raise him as one. Isn't that interesting? Here are your sins. Now do this in order to atone for it. But isn't that what we do in many different ways? Here are my sins, now let me go on a long enough streak without sinning those sins again. Here are my sins, now let me go a long enough streak of feeling really, really bad about my sins and beating myself up, and then I can come to Jesus. How different are we from believing the grace of the gospel? You see, actually, when these storms come upon us, we need to come to the realization that our efforts will not solve the problem. You see, you need to realize this. If our efforts caused the problem, then our efforts cannot solve the problem. Right? Now, it's not merely saying this, well, I just need to make sure I feel really bad about sin and I'm not, I can't save myself. That's not all there is to faith. It's also clinging to Jesus and believing him. This is very important for becoming a Christian and also growing as a Christian. Because believers, we need to often be reminded we can't solve our deepest problems on our own. Only Jesus can. There's actually a key word here that I think helps us to see how the storm will stop. The word or the phrase that says that the sea may quiet down for us. This Hebrew word is actually used in Proverbs 26.20 where it says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. That's the word. So you see that 
you know, where there's no fire, there's, the, the fire will go out. I mean, excuse me, where there's no wood, the fire will go out. Where there's no gossip, the quarreling will cease. Well, here's, I think, what we can see here. How will the storm not be there anymore? How will God's wrath go away when sin is no longer there? How does that happen? Well, we actually need to understand what Jonah would have understood back then is actually this word called atonement. The covering of God's people, of their sins. It would be what would take sin away from them. We actually see this in Leviticus chapter 16, that there would be two goats. One of the goats would be slain and be killed, and its blood would be poured out on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the temple. But then we see a second goat, and the high priest would take this live second goat, and he would put both of his hands on the goat, and he would confess the sins of all God's people, and then shoo that goat away into the wilderness where it would die alone. In other words, our sins are confessed onto a goat where it would die, and then another goat would be slain because sin requires death. Romans 6.23 says this, what are the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? How can you have your sins atoned for? When Jesus 2,000 years ago marched into Jerusalem, or rather rode on a donkey into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, what was he coming to do to atone for his people's sins? That's how he would bring the victory. If God's storm is going to cease, then you need atonement. That's what you need. As a matter of fact, for the believer, when you think God's storm is still upon you, you need to believe that he's atoned for you. Amen? It's a massive storm. But we also see a mysterious ceasing. Look at verse 12 through 16. He said to them, pick me up and... Hurl me into the sea. It's the same word that's been used a lot earlier. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will, it will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. What do they need to do to stop the storm? We, we see here that nothing's going nothing's gonna to stop unless something happens. Jonah says here, he says, pick me up. That word for pick me up is so interesting because it's the same word used actually in the benediction in number 6, 26. So it's probably the benediction. Just, I might change the benediction later. So I'll probably, this is probably a very appropriate one. Number 6, 26, it says this, that Yahweh would lift up his face upon you and give you peace. God's face will not be towards you in favor of you unless it's turned against someone else. You see that, right? Jonah's saying, pick me up. If you're going to have favor, you need to pick me up and throw me into God's storm so that his face might be towards you. It's actually very interesting. That same word is used in Isaiah 53, the great chapter describing the suffering servant who would be Jesus. It said that he took up our iniquities. Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. 
Don't just pick me up, but hurl me into there. Throw me into God's wrath because that's what sinners deserve. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, you, are, you who are purer eyes than to see evil and you cannot look at wrong. Darkness, as John says, darkness cannot dwell in his presence, which is light. Just as these lights shine down, so it casts out darkness. You see, wherever there is darkness and wherever you shine a light, darkness goes away. You see, darkness cannot dwell in God's presence. That's why sinners need to be cast into death. But there is something very interesting here because this is often what a believer struggles with. A believer often struggles with thinking that, well, maybe I still need to be thrown into the sea of God's wrath. Don't, don't we struggle with that at times? It's actually that, remember that word, anfechtungen. It's often what the, the lies that that mindset is. You see, we often think that because of a past sin that is still haunting us or a present sin that we're still battling against but struggling with, or maybe, maybe one day there will be that future sin, but maybe one day that Jesus won't be enough and God will have to also hurl me into his sea of wrath. Don't we struggle with that at times? But dear believer, I want you to realize this. If you are in union with Jesus, which all believers are, God will sooner throw Jesus Christ into the sea of wrath again before he throws you in there. Amen? That's impossible. We got to ask the question here. Why do, why do they not just turn back? Oh, you're running away? Let's go the other way. Instead of Tarshish, we're, we're taking an audible here. We're going back to Jerusalem. We're sending you to Nineveh. Is, is Jonah sparing them here? Is, is he sparing their lives? Is he showing mercy towards them? You throw me overboard? Or is he despairing of himself as he does later in chapter 4? It's kind of a toss-up. You, you choose, or why not both? Why not a little bit of both? But see, we often try to avoid God's wrath, don't we? Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. You might have a footnote in your Bible there when it said the men rode hard. It would say, uh, in the footnote, it would say Hebrew, the men dug in. It's actually the same word used in Amos chapter 9, verse 2, referring to digging one's way into Sheol, which would be the realm of the dead. In other words, this. Fighting against God's wrath. Trying with your efforts to escape God's judgment only leads further down the path of death. That's what it's showing. They could not escape God's wrath. You see that very clearly. They tried rowing. They tried really hard, but they could not. Dear believer, you can't escape. You can't just deal with your sin on your own. You must constantly be in the lifestyle coming back to Jesus with it. An unbeliever, you'll never be able to run away from the God who is everywhere. You must come back to Jesus because the more you try to run away, you dig yourself deeper. 
Matter of fact, it doesn't just say that they couldn't do it. It says that it got worse. This is why we can also often say that it is the stupidity of sin. We often don't feel God's wrath, do we? That's part of the problem. We're in a very feelings age, and there are pros and cons to that, but often we rely too much on our feelings to determine what's the reality of our lives. The problem with that is that guilt is different than shame. Shame is the feltness of guilt. But guilt is a judicial sentence. It is a reality that you don't always feel. You see, the problem is that for the unbeliever, you might not feel guilty. You might be running away from the Lord, not trusting in His Word, describing yourself, defining yourself by whatever sexuality you want to, or running away in this cheating lifestyle, having these secret sins in your marriage, or children who you are just slowly but surely quietly trying to run away, as it were, from your parents and rebel against them. We don't always feel guilty, but the reality is this, is that all sin, no matter how small or how big, no matter if it's a fog or a cup of water, God declares it that you're guilty and that I'm guilty. It is actually important for the believer to understand that too, because sometimes we can be unrepentant in something and just try to forget about it because after all, time heals all. And rather than confessing and repenting of it, we just try to forget about it. And we don't feel guilty, but the reality of the word never changes. That's often why God sends storms into the lives of a believer. Not because it's wrath. It is not wrath. But storms are God's discipline. It's a way in which we learn to turn out of ourselves and unto him. So how do we respond to the storm? Well, look what they did in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Were these men, were they converted? I would, I would say most likely the evidence points there, but it's not definitive. And, well, just do your own studies. Um, but let's pretend that they were. I do think we see a lot of things that actually happens here because, for one, they called out to the Lord. In other words, they pray to him. It's so fascinating that the first description of the church in all the Bible comes in Genesis 4, 26, where it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. It is interesting that one of the first and most distinctive markers of a church is a praying people. But then we also see, actually, how Paul himself, actually, when he was Saul in Acts Nine before he is renamed to Paul. But when Saul is converted, in Acts 9 verse 11, it's telling Ananias, how will you know who this person is? For behold, he is praying. It is actually very interesting that the first thing that a Christian does is call out to God saying, save me. 
they don't just pray in general. They, they, they pray particularly, look at it, they called out to the Lord. It's spelled in all caps, meaning Yahweh. That's his covenant name. In other words, becoming a believer is not calling out to the God who is out there. Being a believer is not merely uh, believing in God's existence. Faith is not merely believing that Jesus existed, that he taught, and that he did these things. Faith is believing that what God's word says is true. That's why the doctrine of scripture is so important. They call out to Yahweh, the covenant keeper. And what would come to mind for Jonah, no doubt, would be a lot of this. In Genesis chapter 3, we learn that the covenant keeper had promised that even though there would be the curse upon Satan and the curse upon the world, nevertheless, there would be someone who would come from the line of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. Later on in Genesis 6 through 9, we see the flood uh, come upon the whole earth because of sin. And then God gives us the rainbow, which by the way, the rainbow is actually the word used for an actual bow and arrow in war. And that bow is pointing towards heaven. God is saying, look, this wrath will be somehow, in other words, poured out on me. Later on, we would see in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 that this covenant-keeping God would send someone who would save sinners by grace alone, as we sung earlier. That he would give them a name, he'd give them a place, he'd give them a people. Later on, we see in Exodus 19 and 20 that God would send someone who would fulfill the law and that he would enable his own people to repent of their sins and walk in their ways. And even later on in 2 Samuel 7, we see this covenant God make another covenant saying, look, one day there will be a great king. He's going to be even greater than David, but this king will defeat all enemies. His kingdom will never end, and his people will be delivered. Amen? That's the covenant keeper who Jonah would have thought about. This is the God we must call out to. The God who would send someone to be tossed into the sea of God's wrath to deliver us. They pray, it's very interesting when you look at their prayer, Oh Lord, let us not perish. They're asking God, don't let us die because well, sin has put their lives in jeopardy. Running away has made them come face to face with God's wrath. But they also say, and lay not on us innocent blood. In other words, don't count sin against us. It's almost like they're saying, please forgive us and don't haunt us with this in the future. Dear believer, God is not a haunting God. He is a God who convicts us. But he is not a God who constantly brings up your past saying, now don't you dare forget this. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, which by the way would be an immeasurable distance, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the promise you can have in Jesus Christ. That when you pray to the almighty God saying, I'm looking to you to take away my sins, that's the reality. But then they also pray, they say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This word for pleasing is actually a word that reminds us of covenant theology. 
It's a word that, as one person says, when used favorably, let's say, if I can just point out, let's use Murray. Murray, you're, you're my friend this morning. Uh, be careful. If you come to Grace Church, I might use you as my friend. Murray, you're my friend. If that word is used upon Murray in a favorable way, it means he receives God's blessings. But then I won't use you as a negative. I'll use me this time. Let's say now that word is used against me as a negative example. Now I receive God's curses. In other words, if God's heart is for someone, they will receive his blessings. And if they're against someone, they will receive his curses. You see that what's happening here is that one person is receiving curses, the other person is receiving blessings. You see that, right? Blessed. This word that it pleases the Lord is actually used also again in Isaiah 53 verse 10 where it says it was the will of the Lord. In other words, it was pleasing to the Lord to crush him. Do do you want to know what's amazing? No matter how sinful any one of us in here is. If you come to Jesus Christ with all your sin, forsaking all of your good deeds, and you just cling only to him, God is satisfied to never again haunt you with your sin, to never pour out wrath on you, but to only show you covenant blessing. Amen? That's amazing. Because God was so satisfied that that one Savior who is God and man, he was so satisfied that he is enough for scores of people. That's what we have in him. They do what they're told. You see that in verse 15. They pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea. It ceases from its raging. But then, here's what happens immediately when they do that. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord. Oh, excuse me, I think I skipped over something. Sorry. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. It's interesting, the sea is also now personified, just like the ship was earlier. The ship thought it was going to break up, and the sea is now saying, okay, I'm done. And isn't that what happened on the cross with Jesus Christ? When he said, it is finished. And the sea of God's wrath ceases immediately. It is a miracle. We see that in someone being tossed into the sea of God's wrath, God satisfied. We have eyewitnesses to this event. This, obviously this sounds very unbelievable. It should be. Because it mirrors the reality of us being forgiven of our sins. Of us being cleansed. It's a miracle. That's the whole point of these miraculous things happening. Including and especially him being in the belly of the fish. They respond and what's so crazy is that now they have an even greater fear. Isn't that wild? They respond in even more fear and they offer a sacrifice and they make vows. It it seems as if they responded. Because here's the point that they're seeing. How do you get God's storm to cease? Someone else has got to go in there. Somebody else has got to go in there if it's not going to come upon you. 
We see in verse 17, then God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're not going to be able to talk about this as much this morning, but we'll hit on this more for Easter Sunday. But what we do know is this, is that if you're wrestling with whether this is true or not, whether this is just a parable or not, Jesus himself confirms this in Matthew 12, verse 40, when he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. And if Jesus was not really and truly in death, then there would be no salvation for us. Jesus is embracing the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. See, it's pointing towards him because he would be the greater Jonah. He would be the one who would be tossed into the sea of God's wrath for it to cease. He would be the one who, rather than running away from God, ran towards us and willingly jumped in there so that there might be no more for you and me. And for all those who come to Jesus Christ, that is the promise that you have. I love the story about a preacher in the early 1900s who, he was 12 years old and he had killed one of the family geese by throwing a stone and and hitting it on the head. And they had 24 geese and he figured that maybe his parents wouldn't notice and so he buried the geese and that evening his sister came to him and said, I saw what you did. If you don't offer to do the dishes tonight for me, then I'll tell mother. The next morning, she gave him the same warning. All that day and the next, the frightened little boy, he felt bound to do the dishes. The following morning, however, he was surprised when he came to his mother and he confessed his sins and she said, I already knew. Interestingly, he came back to his sister and said, now it's your turn to do the dishes. But isn't that the point here? God knows you're running away. He's calling you to confess your sins and to repent and receive the mercy that is in Jesus Christ. And that's what this table represents. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this moment. You will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that by your mercy you would grant us that very faith we are desperate to have to be saved would you help us to trust that Jesus is the one who alone satisfies your wrath and that we would rest in him we ask all this in his name amen